the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Talking Christians and politics, and then it's venting time as we talk about what grinds our gears. The history of Amazing Grace, and later, more on pastors and plagiarism. You're listening to The Common Good. Tuesday, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. It's really good to have you with us today on a Tuesday afternoon, brisk out there. Aubrey, I'll just... Yeah, it feels like fall. It does, although it's supposed to warm up as the week goes. It was weird. I My son had a football game last night. They were victorious, played well. Oh, and, nice. Congrats. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, but the sun was blazing and it was really hot. And then the sun went down. Yeah, it was the weirdest thing. I know this is how weather works. So people out there are like, what is it? (laughs) It's like when the sun went below the horizon, it immediately dropped 10 degrees. And I was like, what in the world just happened? This is maybe boring radio fodder, but I like it. So we'll just keep talking about it. Here's what I noticed this morning. My alarm went off at 6 a.m. It it's already starting to get darker. Like I was uh, like, yes. no, this cannot be happening. I like to wake up to the sun, but I was like, there is no sunshine. Now I know it's cloudy and that might've been part no, of it. No, I had the same I, thought this morning. It's happening. The times are changing. It's really weird you bring that up because for me this morning, I was like, I was getting up to take a quick shower before I had to get my son mm-hmm. up. And I was like, I actually had to look at my clock like multiple times going, am I getting up at the right time? Is this right? I, yeah. yeah I, it's so funny you bring that up. I had that exact thought. So uh, wait, fall, Brian, I got Yes. Because also fall, I have to tell you something. You'll be really proud of me. Okay. That's a big ready? assumption, but Are that's a big ready? assumption to make. But go ahead. I watched <laughs> the Seahawks-Broncos game with my husband last night, and I got very excited in certain parts of the game. And that was I all think for we- you, Brian From. All no, no, you. I don't think it was for me. You've begun getting flown out to speak at this church multiple times <laughs> in Seattle, and now you're posting things on Twitter like, let's go Seahawks. <laughs> I, I definitely am trying to tap into the Seattle love for that church. That's accurate. That's accurate. No, I was trying, no, I was trying to love my husband. I was trying to uh-huh. serve you and this no, radio yep, station, sure, Brian. Sure. I, uh, and look, I got excited at things. I was like, okay, all right. Yeah. I, see, I, see the, I see the hype. That's fun when they scored a touchdown and the drama with russell wilson when they when they hit a home run uh yeah the uh, <laughs> the, uh the let's go seahawks so tweet the, the let's go seahawks tweet might have been a, a I was little literally, bit i was literally waiting for you to comment on that and you never did and i thought oh he didn't he didn't see it okay that I was saw all it. for brian I saw it after the game. Like, it wasn't during the game, but I did laugh at that. I'm like, oh, some, someone's trying to get invited back. This is, that's accurate. But I was also trying to get your attention. I was like, oh, I appreciate like, Brian, Brian, Brian. And you didn't even, you didn't give me the time of day online. No, so. no. Well, good job. Good job. <laughs> Let us know when you're going back to Seattle to speak at that church. <laughs> All right, Aubrey, one of the evergreen things we talk about here on The Common Good is what is our role as Christians as it pertains to politics. It's a 
Uh, it's a question a lot of people are asking, and it is um, hard to w- wade through. Like, should we be gung-ho uh, f- only voting for candidates who are going to make us into more of a quote-unquote Christian nation? Do we want mm. candidates who are believers? Is that a big deal? Or should we b- be completely removed from politics uh, only worried about, you know, the church and the gospel and not even concerned at all about politics. And if you listen to this show, you know, we land pretty well in the middle there. Uh, but one of the disturbing trends, I would say, I'll speak for myself here, but I believe you think this as well, is the pandering that many politicians mm. do towards kind of this Christians. monolithic evangelical this monolithic christian that we're all the same we all believe the same right we can all be quite frankly manipulated in the same way Mm -hmm. and uh we are just this enormous voting block that all christians only care about what you're doing for our pet issues and uh, all of us christians think the same uh and that has always been more of a conservative republican thing uh, yeah. But I've been seeing it. You and I had a conversation the other day about the abortion debate and how people on the left are much more like, nope, we are the Christian answer here. We're the Christian answer. It's like this argument over who's more Christian. Yeah. And not just who's more Christian, but who will do more for the Christians. Yeah, that's uh, right. And so with that in mind, I want to play a clip for you from the weekend. Oh, no. This is I'm Eric very Trump. nervous about this. Oh, no. Okay. This is. Okay. Eric Trump, thus one of the sons of former President Donald Trump, and most people believe that barring a major escalation of legal issues here, that former President Trump will soon be candidate Trump again for the presidential election. Yeah. And so Eric Trump uh, was in Kentucky speaking at a very conservative event, and I want you to hear what he said. Let's listen to what Eric Trump said. Fighting for religious liberty. There's no one that's done more for Christianity than Donald Trump. No one. All right, Aubrey. I think the headline here that most people are latching onto is that he insists no one has done more for Christianity than his father. And uh, obviously, when you hear this, you're like, um, I'm not sure. But it <laughs> raises sure, but... a more. Not sure <laughs> if ahead. I agree with that. But it raises a more important question. And let me put this question because a lot of us are going, oh, that's just crazy, right? Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But what does he even mean, do you think, when he says nobody has done more? When people say, I've done a lot for the Christians as a politician, what are they even talking about? So here's – okay. The, The statement being the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard in my life. Jesus has done more for Christianity than anyone else. Okay. Let's just be clear about that. That said. The Apostle Paul would like a word right, with you. Right. That said, here's what I think he's getting at without really knowing the context of this. I think he means religious liberty. Cause I feel like mm-hmm. that's kind of where the politicians go when they're, when they're talking to Christians, we'll preserve your religious liberty. We'll preserve your right to, you know, to public worship and public prayer and prayer in schools and just sort of that, that conversation and um unfortunately like i i don't i don't know enough to know what donald trump did or didn't do for religious liberty my guess is that's what he's talking about 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and I, I feel like I can't speak expertly. I know a lot of people would say Trump did a ton for mm-hmm. religious liberty, mm-hmm. especially for the Christians. Um, I think the statement itself is difficult to swallow um, simply because of its arrogance and and mm. sort of like question mark. Did he? Um, but I think going back to your original thing, like, do we want it is frustrating. Like, I, I would affirm that I would love to see more Christians in politics. That said, mm-hmm. I don't like the pandering to evangelical Christians because it makes me think you think I'm stupid. Mm. And um, and like you said, that you're lumping all evangelicals together, assuming you can easily say these things and then like brainwash us. But unfortunately it does work on people. And so it's I, working, you know, I, you know, this is why my husband always says like Trump is a brilliant tactician. I know we're not here just to talk about Trump, but um, right. But it's his son because, who said it. Yep. Yeah. His son said it uh, because he knows somehow he understands the way certain evangelicals work in our nation. And he knows the right things to say. And like, he's getting followers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I'm a little all over the place right now, but just back to like, no one has done more for Christianity than my father is absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like you can't take that seriously. So you are right. He later was quoted to say, nobody has moved religious Liberty forward. Oh, okay. Uh, like his dad. Okay. To, to his credit, right. Trump put in many judges who were instrumental in abortion being overturned or Roe versus Wade, I should say being overturned or other things. But yeah. here's, I think, let me let me weigh into where I have a problem with this statement. Okay. And this has more to do with the Christians than it does with the politicians. When was the goal for the Christians to, quote unquote, have a lot done for you? Mm, like, when is by our politicians over, too. Yeah. When is our when is our ultimate goal? What have you done for me? Yeah. That feels like a non-Christian stance. <laughs> like a. That's uh, a good point. A, That's sort of the opposite of what like kind of Christianity would say, which is like, wait, no, I'm here to serve. Right. And, right. and also, and also like this sense that like our, our politicians, our government leaders would be for us. Like, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Like, that's not biblical either. Yeah. Like, you know, we think about the, we think about the earliest followers of Jesus, like the Roman empire was opposed to them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. no one was like, Hey, let's, Let's pray that the Roman Empire, I mean, I'm sure they were trying to convert Romans to Jesus, but it wasn't because they necessarily were like, because we want the Roman power to do things for us. Yes. Yeah. And so I I guess uh, when I read this, like politicians matter, it matters. I've told you, Aubrey, we'll talk about this later in the week, possibly, but the whole thing going on in my town of Downers Grove at the library, like that local politics matter right all the way yeah. down to the library board and city council and all this stuff totally totally i wholeheartedly but with agree. that said church we can't be just this monolithic group going what can you give me politician what can you do for me like that's not mm. our calling and that's mm. not the kingdom that mm. we're following so found this to be uh very interesting interesting yet again uh view into how politicians view us. And I think we've let them view us this way and it's That's problematic. It. That's it. Uh, Aubrey, I want to talk about a sermon that I was reminded of this week. Um, that I just try to, re- I try to put myself in this pastor's shoes at the moment. It was the sermon that Tim Keller preached 
uh, in New York City, five miles or so from the World Trade Center oh, wow. on September the 16th, 2001. Let me give you the background. The, the Gospel Coalition uh, kind of reruns this every year. Hmm. Uh, and it says this, on September 16th, 2001, the line to get into Redeemer Presbyterian Church stretched out the door. Not hmm. quite five miles north of the World Trade Centers, they could still smell the burning buildings and see the posters asking for information about the missing. Pastor Tim Keller added another service on the spot, asking the musicians if they'd stay and those in line if they'd come back. They did. Normally, a church of around 2,800, Redeemer hosted 5,300 worshipers that day. Uh, and so before talking about what he talked about, can you imagine that setting? And and oh. what it even says to us that that many people five days after the World Trade Center in the area were like, I'm getting to church that day. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a pretty I mean, it's a pretty like evocative picture, almost, you know, fifty five hundred people coming to church and waiting in line. And I imagine the emotions were really high. The expectation was really high and people just needing like answers right yeah. and hope yeah. like what in the world just happened and i think it also says a lot about the um the reputation of redeemer prez that Good i'm point. sure it wasn't i'm sure it wasn't the only church that had that many people that day and yet just that people felt like here's a safe place we can go after this horrific thing like they're obviously a known entity in the city yeah um, yeah but yeah i imagine that scene was I imagine that and and just even the physical devastation around the scene, you know what I mean? Burning buildings and the World Trade Center's like falling apart. Uh, it, it's hard to picture all that all that that morning felt like. No doubt about it. It's mm. it, crazy. So Keller, it says, was preaching his way through the book of Jonah, but he stepped out of the series to talk about and he preached from John chapter 11, verses one through 44. And the sermon was titled. Truth, tears, anger, and grace. And so they just basically write the manuscript here. And let me just mm -hmm. read how he started. He said, Mary and Martha were facing the same problem we face today, which was on that day. They were looking at a tragedy and saying, where were mm -hmm. you, Lord, in all of this? How do we make sense of this? Mm -hmm. Jesus moved, moves through the runes with four things, truth, tears, anger, and finally grace. The wow. truth he wields with Martha, the tears he sheds with Mary, the anger he directs at the tomb, and the grace he extends to everybody. And then he says, let's look at the way these four things fit together. Wow. I mean, wow. I can imagine the depth of that. Um, mm. What do you think just simply about the passage? Because you got you, he loves New York. He knows people. The yeah. buildings are down. Like, right. And at right. some point, he was sitting in his office that week going, I got one shot at this. What am I going to say? What mm. am I? And, and not only what am I going to say, what is the passage I'm going to draw out? Yeah. Of? Yeah. What do you think about even the passage that he chose? Yeah. I, I feel like I have heard a lot of other pastors over the years come back to this sermon because of this passage. Like the fact that he's, this is at Lazarus's uh, funeral essentially. Right. right? And, yeah. and I think Keller is most famous for reminding all of us about Jesus's like deep anger at death and thinking about death as an enemy. And so it, it's powerful to me that he chose this because I think ultimately the, 
the narrative is telling us like Jesus is as angry at the evil in this world, at destruction, at death as we are. And you get the sense that death is a power. And then I think the, the beautiful thing is the hope that um, one day Jesus will overcome death forever. Yeah. So I yeah. think this, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's so much wisdom and, and really you see Keller as a shepherd, right? Cause he, yes. there's all kind he could have brought in, revelation and he could have brought you know i feel like he could have kind of done almost a fire and brimstone sermon but instead he did a very like emmanuel god with us sermon and i I imagine like you were saying keller himself was grieving right oh my gosh yeah in one sense here's a pastor needing to see the tears of jesus over his city as much as the people were needing that as well yeah i i really appreciate that as I was thinking about the passage he chose, and when we deal with people who are hurting, you know, yeah. probably not a tragedy to the grand scale of nine eleven, but personal tragedy to the same scale, right? Like, uh, yeah, he chose a passage in which people look at Jesus and are like questioning him, "Why mm. weren't you here?" Right, and I, I think even in a subtle way for somebody like Tim Keller. Uh, to uh, to be able to look at people who are hurting here and say, I'm going to choose a passage in which you're invited to kind of shake your fist at God and yeah. say, you messed yeah. up. Where were... yeah. like, That's one of the yeah. few times that happens in the gospel where Mary and Martha are looking at Jesus going, you could have done something about right. this. Right, right. Why didn't you, you do? How many mm-hmm. people out of 9-11 looked at God and been like, you could have done something about this. Yeah. And I, I can't, yeah. I, that wasn't an accident that Tim Keller, in my opinion, chose a passage in which it opened the door to people mm. feeling the freedom to go, mm. God, where, where were you? Where were you, God? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, th- I think you're right. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there that, cause it is, it's such a, it's such a theological question. Jesus, where were you? You know? And, mm-hmm. and like you said, knowing like you, you could have done something that you and you didn't. And there is a, I mean, there is like a problem like that we have to sort of face as Christians, which is, you know, even in that story, Jesus took four days to mm-hmm. go to his friend Lazarus, you know, go to his friend Lazarus' graveside. And that's complicated for us to read. Like, what in the world, God? Why weren't you hurrying? Like, why weren't you operating on the time frame that we want you to? Why did it take you so long to be here? And What's interesting also about that story is what makes it so powerful is, I mean, one, like God's timing, not our timing, but also that that the death and the evil would be thwarted ultimately by Jesus yeah. as he raises Lazarus. And, and then ultimately as Jesus himself goes to his death and is raised, I, I just think it's that sort of the gospel story, right? That's kind right. of in a nutshell. That story is the gospel story. We can just always jump to the end of the stories, right? Well, we know Lazarus Lazarus was raised, and we know Jesus went to the cross, but he was going to be. But people in those moments didn't know the end to those stories. Yeah, and right, right. We, I almost think it would have been a little bit painful if Keller had gotten up at nine eleven, five miles from Ground Zero, and said, "Hey, this all ends up well in the end." Right. Hey, uh, it's true. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, you do want to proclaim Christ's victory, but in that mm-hmm. moment, he needed to find a way for people to be able to go, 
I know the future reality, but the present yeah. doesn't feel fair. Right. And the present right. doesn't feel right. And so uh, anyway, I, I would Google uh, Tim Keller 9-11 sermon or something and give it a listen if you can or give it a read. It is really powerful, especially for those of you as you go through difficult times. Mm. Um, it's very helpful. Aubrey, that music can only mean one thing, and it's time for Grimes Mike. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about it. Grimes Mike ears. It's can time. Can you it's... remind our people what this yes. is, why we do it? Yes. Okay. The the clarifier we always like to make with Grinds My Gears is um, essentially it's a venting session, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. know we know there are real problems in the world. Like there is world hunger. Inflation. Ukraine, yeah, yes. uh, Ukraine and Russia, inflation, uh, refugee crises. Like we understand, and we talk about these those things on this show quite a bit. This is a moment to vent about petty, shallow things that are driving us crazy, mostly because they gave us a mic, and this feels like it's our counseling session with you. So it's That's a right. little, it, it's coming from maybe a place of privilege. We're not talking about like, you know, like you know, it grinds my gears oppression like we're not talking about that we're talking about like like you know people who my favorite that you've always given is people who push their dogs in baby strollers like we're venting about that kind of thing men who wear like bejeweled jeans is one of mine oh shoot i i I might need to go get new jeans then (laughs) (laughs) so that's grinds my gears all right i'm gonna lead us off here are you ready i have two i have two today and uh, let me go with the one that happened recently. Aubrey, um, it it bothers me so much when you especially are you go to a restaurant and you go through a drive through. Yeah. And they get your order wrong. And you've started Ooh. driving away. And you've started driving away. And now you have to go like, okay. Am I going to turn around, go back to this place, yeah. go in? Because you're not going to go through the drive-thru. Go in. Right, or right. am I going to eat or drink something that just isn't what I ordered? This has happened to me on a couple of occasions recently. One, you know, including at this moment, I have a Dunkin' Donuts unsweetened iced tea. As you always do. As I always do. Every now and then, they accidentally give you an iced coffee. And it looks oh, the same. no. And That's I can't, problematic. I can't do it. I cannot yeah. do it. Like I yeah. can't. And the other day I got one while driving. I think I was driving to my son's football game and oh. I got like a mile away before I took the drink, right? Like you're pulling out, you put it in a cup holder, you start driving. Now you're driving, you grab it and you're like, it ruined me. Like I was like, uh, all I wanted was this iced tea. And then you don't another drink coffee. Day, so people don't no, understand I, like that's I have to a throw big. It out. Yeah, that's like a it's big gone. Switch. It's gone. Right, right. And then another day last week, I went through, hmm, I forget, it was a McDonald's, it was a Wendy's, it was something like that, okay? And yeah. I have a hatred for two things that normally come on fast food burgers, or okay. any burgers, but especially fast food burgers. Okay. I hate, I hate onions. Okay. Uh, and I despise mustard. Okay. And so when I two get- Two things let's I say, like. Let's say I drive through McDonald's, yeah. right? And and I get a cheeseburger, for yeah. instance. I always get it with only ketchup and pickles. Okay, uh, so hey, you I say, get a cheeseburger, you say ketchup, cheeseburger ketchup and pickles only. Yeah. 
The other day I drive through, I'm in a rush, I'm going somewhere, I'm going to eat in the car. I grab, I'm already gone down the road and I grab it and it is, I take a bite. I don't even look at it. And it's that immediate mustard taste. And I'm oh, like, no. oh no. At that oh, point, no. I'm like, do I take a French fry and try to right. scrape as scrape much it. of this off? <laughs> do I turn around and like, not just be that guy, but now take all that time for myself to like have that to is... turn around, go back? Yeah, no. Or do I eat it? Uh uh. Right. Do right. I eat it and like right. not enjoy the experience that I just paid for? Or do I throw oh. this out and just be hungry? So what did There's you do? no. Good answer. I always try to scrape it as much as I can. And the then French I put more ketchup. Is... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, no. You find like the stiffest French fry you yeah, can get. Yeah, no. I mean, that's like a very human moment. I like that. Okay, go you ahead. scrape it off. And then I try to like, assuming I have another ketchup packet, I'll put more ketchup on it to try to, to cover. overdo. Yeah. But it's never yeah. as good. And yeah. here's what I want to say. I know restaurants, uh, fast food places and other things are understaffed right now. Yeah. I know, but it feels like the only thing that matters, even if it's going to extend my time in the line, is please just get it right. Like, just get it right. Yeah. And I don't care if it takes me more time. I don't care. I, I, don't, under, I don't worry about the consequences to making sure it is correct. Because it's one thing to be in a restaurant and be able to be like, hey, waitress, like, hey, this isn't what I ordered. But yeah. drive through, it feels like you just have to get it right because it ruins the experience. Yeah, there and it go. is, yeah, and it is really, really complicated to go. I mean, I know you've said this, but to go back in line, especially if there's a long line, or even to get out of your car and go into the store to have them fix the order, like that like defeats the reason you went to the drive through in the first right. place. Right. So right. I, I hear that if, if I like mustard, but if they did that with mayonnaise, I'd be feeling the same way. I'd be like, yes. no, 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 no. Okay. So, um, Brian, mine I'm is ready. a little, mine's a little more serious than yours. Like I might be like breaking the rules a little bit, <laughs> but here we go. Um, you and I speak a lot at different places uh get we your do shot not. Glass. i speak at my church okay you speak, you speak many different church, places i speak at a lot of places <laughs> and uh this this you know maybe grab your shot glass brian and i are both pastors there you um, go i every once in a while you go speak somewhere and i brian i think you'll see this in your local church too maybe i'm wrong but there's always one dude it's always a guy I, always a guy always a guy which says something i like to call him the like arm crossed guy where mm -hmm. he sits sort of in the front row and he's there to to i guess evaluate you judge you decide if you meet his approval and his arms are crossed and he's sitting <laughs> sideways and he's not taking notes and he's looking down and he's shaking his head and sometimes that guy afterwards feels the need to come up to me and like mansplain some things to me sometimes it's enough <laughs> that he's just the arm crossed guy yes in the room and i that grinds my gears because here's what i want to say to you sir arm crossed guys around the world you write the sermon and do it do you know how hard it is to write a sermon when also you like have full-time jobs and are a mom and a wife <sighs> and like you write the sermon and you do the sermon. If so, if if you're so if you're so already decided this isn't for you, you write it and you do it instead. So a similar and it's always a, it's funny because women we're going to paint with a really broad brush here. Women tend to make eye contact and smile at you even if what you're saying is just 
Right. Gibberish. I feel like women like cheer you on. Like women are like it's for true. you. True. Yes. This might yes. sound sexist as people who have talked to groups for a long time. It's just true. Yeah. Men, on the other hand, there's always I got there's arm cross guy. There's another guy. Who's and I this? Fear Who's that, this guy? I fear that I might be this guy when I listen Uh-oh. to other people. Okay. Is looking down guy. So like oh, not making yeah. eye contact. Yeah. Sometimes it's hands in your a head in your hands on like hands on the side of the head yeah yes yeah. and just looking down there's that yeah um all right i'm gonna save my other one for another time but also remind me sometime to vent about another uh type of person after you speak okay it's uh it's you're all done speaking and they come up and tell you what you should have added no and you that's... say and yes. you say uh i'm not i'm done like i there's nothing there's I, no I point in my speaking of this again. Right. No, <laughs> I feel like that guy is the mansplainer guy and I get him a lot. In fact, I know I, I know we need to end this, but can I just say one thing? Yes. I, I speak a lot on the topic of lament and I have spent years in the book of lamentations. I am not an expert at all, but like, you know, I pass. But you know Taylor more Swift than most lamentations. people. I know yeah. some things about it. A guy said to me, you know, I really wish you would have said that lamentations is an uh lamentations is uh, um acrostic poems i was speaking somewhere <laughs> and i said you know i i know that and it was like he wanted me to know he knew that and i didn't yes and yes, so yes. i said yeah the the first four chapters are acrostic poems i chose not to say that because i don't know that it's really relevant to everybody you know like <laughs> but it's like that guy like you want to be like okay i edited it i didn't say everything let you preach it next time. Anyway, okay, we can move on. That That's obviously so grinds my gears. It, it, my it gears. we we had something. So I <sighs> I might try the drive through somewhere today. Okay, uh, to see. Just and, and just see if uh if I have if it goes well for me today. Yeah. Because yeah, if okay. not, it will ruin my day. And I, I wish uh, you luck. Yes, thank you. And to arm cross guy out there, may you be very arm crossy this Sunday wherever it is you That's are worshiping. Right. God bless you. <laughs> Again, it's good to do that. Brian, one of the things that you and I have repeatedly come back to is um, conversations around worship, worship songs, songs we like, songs we're not big fans of, Mm -hmm. themes around those songs. And what would you say if I were to ask you what is one of the most popular uh, hymns, I guess you would call it a hymn, hymns in the church uh, over the past like 200 years? What would you say? Shout to the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the most best-selling uh worship songs of all time by the way so, so there you know the, there there are a couple hymns that are like stand the test of time and are yeah. always there i think probably if i had to go top two i yeah. would go uh amazing grace and i would yep. go great as thy faithfulness <gasps> that's what i was thinking those two brian and wow. then there's a little space and then there's a little space and you okay. get to the how great thou art. Oh, that's a good one. Those, yeah. there's, there's a list there, but it feels like, and there might be somebody yelling at their, at their radio right now. You're forgetting, but it feels like amazing grace and great as thy faithfulness are like yeah. the stalwarts. Yeah, they, they really are. And um, amazing grace. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it turns 250 years old this year. And it, it, the thing about amazing grace is interesting. Is it sung in church? It's sung at funerals. It's sung mm-hmm. at protests. It's sung as a folk song. It's a pop culture icon. Amazing grace. I don't know if you know this. Uh, it was featured on the Simpsons, <laughs> Cheers, Star Cheers. Trek, 
Okay. And Amazing Grace has been covered by, you know, all kinds of singers. Johnny Cash, Aretha Franklin, Willie Nelson. I used to listen to a folk singer who's not a Christian, Ani DeFranco. She covered the song. Like, everybody is so popular, right? Like, it is well-known, iconic, amazing grace. And its history is fascinating. So Christianity Today went through a history of amazing grace. And, Brian, some of this I'm just going to share with you. Like, we're going to learn a little history lesson. But I think we... The conversation is probably like, why? Why has it stood as one of the most popular and successful hymns of mm. all time? Why 250 years later is it still so um, embedded in our culture? I, I think there's a, a discussion to be had there. But let me let me share some things. Uh, its writer was evangelical clergyman and reformed slave trader, John Newton. Mm-hmm. Lots of people know about his life. It's been well-documented. This is all from Christianity Today. His mother died in infancy. He later joined his father at sea, and he eventually became a slave trader. The profession was abhorrent, even to many who had no ethical qualms about enslavement itself. But Newton was apparently so morally repugnant in this context that even his colleagues were appalled. He was eventually marooned in West Africa. He says this, I was in effect, though without a name, a captive and slave myself. I was depressed to the lowest degree of human wretchedness when he, Mm. that was during his time in West Africa on um, his voyage home. He was eventually rescued from uh, West Africa. His thoughts turned to his mother's faith during a violent storm. I love that a mother's faith is the thing Mm. that got him. That's so encouraging for your moms out there. In the coming years, he embraced evangelical Christianity and was eventually appointed a minister in only Buckinghamshire. Very, that's a very British name. It was here that his friendship with William Cowper blossomed and the pair began writing hymns together. Anyway, uh, Newton embraced a good bit of Calvinist theology, but he was also grounded in practical and pastoral concerns. And his practice was to write hymns to be sung following his sermons. So I didn't know this, but Amazing Mm. Grace was written um, because of a sermon he was giving on 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And the hymn gave voice voice to King David's faithfulness at God's grace and the covenant promises of a kingdom that would endure through all generations. I didn't know that. I think that's so interesting. A lot of us don't make that connection between the song and uh, First Chronicles anymore. But um, so that's some of the some of the history. Obviously, the song has been you know, sort of unparalleled in that it has connected with black Christians, white Christians, Christians around the world. Again, we talked about before, it's been at uh, civil rights movement events. It's been at funerals. It's been at church services. Really, really, really popular song. Why do you think it has impacted culture the way that it has? I think we all, people who aren't even part of the church want to believe the theology of it. Like, Mm. um, you know, amazing grace, how sweet that's like that, that there is this grace. Now there's deep theology in the midst of it, but I even think, so there's that. And then I think it's one of those that's transcended time in the sense that it's handed down so that even people who aren't necessarily regular church goers uh, at some point in their life, you know, they've interacted with amazing grace. And so it Mm -hmm. it conjures up some sort of good feeling from say their childhood or whatever. Um, But yeah, it is interesting as you anchor it in its story, 
because mm-hmm. you don't think about these songs a lot. The only one that we ever do that with is it as well, because everyone knows the story of, you know, Horatio uh, Spafford's family yeah. dying. And that's where he yeah. wrote the story. Right. But um, yeah, the theology, like he was preaching on First Chronicles 17 and he was mm-hmm. reflecting on it and said, I'll write a song about it. And that turns into Amazing Grace is pretty fascinating. I think it is too. Here's something else that Christianity Today says related to that. The covenant God made in First Chronicles 17 was a covenant that would outlive David. It is a covenant finally fulfilled in the eternal reign of Christ. When we've been there 10,000 years, as that added final verse says, we'll only have just begun. Each of us singing the hymn, whether we're aware of Newton's original intentions or not, can make those words our own. That's right. The the writer goes on to say, each person who sings of the precious grace that appeared the hour I first believed recounts their own conversion experience. And each person who sings of the dangers, toils, and snares that they have been through can recount different trials. The universality and individuality of suffering are sung with one heart and many voices. And he goes on to say that Newton could not have imagined the life this hymn would have. And oh, this yeah. author says that he thinks, you know, it's been around for 250 years, probably 250 more years. But I think that's one of the beautiful things about this song is that somehow it he touches on that universality and the individuality. And I think it just hit that so well. And the fact that it works in so many different contexts, uh, revivals, concert halls, civil rights uh, marches, movie theaters churches i mean we sung it at my grandpa's funeral like i mean just yeah it is one of those timeless timeless songs kind of anchoring our faith and i think a lot of people would say that they have some connection to it go ahead brian and i also think that there's there's power now people don't know this until you like read the background of it there's power in that he wasn't a good dude yeah and and that there was trans but then there was transformation Mm -hmm. in his life and repentance and god Mm -hmm. there's something powerful about that that this wasn't not that this would be a problem but that it wasn't written by some monk who's like but like a slave trader but like a slave trader not even like a slave trader in the sense of well there were slave traders back then like a like a even in that day people were like no this is he's like a bad slave trader He's evil yeah and, and that that god did some sort of transformation through his mm-hmm. mom and through others and one of mm-hmm. the things that got birthed out of that is amazing grace i think speaks to god's amazing grace and and yeah. gives a lot of the wow. power there yeah oh that's that's such a good word anyway very interesting the history of amazing grace you can find out more at christianity.com as it celebrates its 250th birthday uh brian we are not news reporters by any means like i don't i i don't think people come to the common good our incredible listeners that we love so much because they're wanting the news like i think you know my guess is they're wanting encouragement and spiritual content and maybe like how you and i are grappling with some issues and Mm -hmm. and and that kind of thing maybe laughter every once in a while when we're being silly but i will say that uh uh, consuming the news is something that you and I talk about on this show and yeah. how we ought to, as Christians discern, you know, what, what news we take in and how we discern, you know, truth from fiction. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. It's, it's a common theme that we have here on the common yeah. good. Like how do we wrestle that? And I think it's something you and I wrestle with as as individuals because mm-hmm. part of doing this show is you feel a need to and rightfully so to be more connected to what's yeah. going on in the news yeah. yeah and sometimes that can be overwhelming sometimes i yeah. think to myself 
I'd much more prefer to be one of those people who just <laughs> is blissfully unaware of yes, X or unaware of, y. of what's going on in the world and in the church. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Well, our friend Scott McKnight, who um, he's a professor at Northern, professor of New Testament, he uh, has a blog. And he just addressed this concept on reading the news. And here's how he starts, because I think this is important, and I want to be careful to couch this conversation in this. He says, journalists have my respect now and forever. Their professional standards are high, their commitment to the task serious, the craft of writing up or speaking up the news, very noteworthy. Okay, so he says, this is not about news writers or journalists. Mm -hmm. But what he does say is, this is about the nonsense. He says, it's not even the New York Times or National Review or its editors. It's Google. It's Facebook. It's Instagram. Mm. It's Twitter. It's these relentless in-your-face social media giants that promote constant demand and availability and clickbait that grab your attention and their embedded links that keep us spinning in their web. He says, it's about advocacy journalism, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, you name them, that no longer cares about information conveyed so the reader or watcher can make a judgment. News that is persuasion is not news reporting. It's advocacy. Mm. No, it's propaganda pretending to be news. He says that very little has suffered more than the news and its journalists because of social media giants. Mm. He's reading a book called Stop Reading the News, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But what do you think just about that like intro to his blog post? I thought that was it's, pretty powerful. Yeah, it's what we all feel, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, news is not neutral and it never yeah. has been, but it feels much less neutral uh, now than it's ever been. Yeah. And uh, there are a million places to go for news, and so it becomes really difficult to, A, know where to go and trust, right. but B, not become overwhelmed by it. And yeah. like, well, what, well, fine, I won't be on any social media. I won't watch ever watch the TV. Well, that's not an option. Yeah. And so that's it not becomes realistic. very right. difficult to say, to to kind of wrestle with, well, where do I even go? I think he's he's laid out the issues pretty well there. Mm -hmm. I think so, too. He goes on to say that – um he, again, he's reading this book called Stop Reading the News, A Manifesto for Happier, Calmer, and Wiser Life. It's by Rolf Dobelli. And he says, basically, this book is a vigorous challenge to our lifestyle of checking our phones, tablets, computers, our FOMO habits, and our mental addictions to what is not good for us. And he says, here's the things that's not really news. Twitter links, Facebook updates, and who's doing what. And interesting, Brian, I, I thought this article was so timely because there was a season, you know, if you li if you listen back to old episodes of The Common Good, when I was like pretty being pretty vigilant about I will not pick up my phone in the morning. I'm going to go downstairs and read my Bible. I'm going to be quiet before I pick up my phone and start going on social media or my news feed or whatever. But I have totally gotten out of that habit. And even mm -hmm. this morning, I woke up and I grabbed my phone and I started reading the news, email, news feed, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And I was like, oh, I'm doing that thing that I told myself That's I right. wasn't going to do right. anymore. And it's so addicting that we don't even realize we're doing it. But I think we all know it's problematic. But what do you think the heart is like? Why is it so problematic for us to be so consumed by these things? Because it leaves very little time, one, for reflection in life. Like when mm. I'm constantly on my phone, constantly reading new things, constantly on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, doing those types of things, there's no space in my life for deeper thinking, thinking yeah. about the Bible or thinking yeah. about, you know, deeper issues of going on reading 
right? Like yeah. I can read Twitter or I can read a book. And if I'm mm. always reading Twitter, I'm not reading books. And so that's yep. one. And two is what we said earlier. You just get overwhelmed and you feel like yeah. you're running all the time and trying to right. think about and process things all the time that you just burn so out. True. You just yep. can't do it. So I think it, it affects our focus, our ability to focus, mm-hmm. um, just our mental well-being. Mm-hmm. And it just stops you from deep thinking and doing the yeah. things that we know are important to uh, not just be healthy, but a, but a growing faith. Here's some um, data that's reported from this book that Scott McKnight is talking about. Apparently, the news continually stimulates our sympathetic nervous system, a part of our autonomic nervous system. So psychological stressors lead to the release of adrenaline. Adrenaline then leads to a rise in cortisol. So every garish story leads to the production of a stress hormone. So Mm. basically, the, the... Science says that by consuming the news, you are literally putting your body under stress. And then, of course, we know we've looked at studies from the American Psychological Association that half of all adults are suffering from stress caused by news consumption. Half of adults are suffering from stress caused by news consumption. Like if I don't know, this is wild to me. Like if the data doesn't convince us that something needs to change, I don't know what's going to Um, But here's what Scott basically says. Scott McKnight's like whole kind of, okay, now that you know all this, this is bad for you. They're trying to keep you on your algorithms. They're causing you stress. Here's what to do. He says, it's not good for our health. Go read a book. Take some time to read the Bible. (laughs) That's literally how he ends it. Read the Bible. He also says, you know, some people say, well, how am I going to know what's going on in the world? And Scott and this other author basically say, look, people are going to tell you, like, you're going to find out the things you need to know. So don't stress. But I I will say, Brian, like this is, I don't, you know, it's like we know, we know, we know, we know that the constant cycle of news is is causing damage to us, that the constant social media use usage is bringing so much anxiety and depression to us. And yet I don't feel like any of us are doing what, I shouldn't say any of us, most of us are not doing what it takes to actually like make a difference or change or stop. And That's so right. I, he, what do we do? Well, one of the reasons is like, cause McKnight's right. Right. Like, it's like, Hey, duh. Like, don't be on your phone yeah. so much. Like do this. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things it's, it, what it's the old fear of missing out. And it's this mm, idea that, yeah. Have you had this moment like where you maybe are somewhere where your phone has to be off for an hour or yeah. maybe you accidentally leave your phone in your house and you're like, right. What happened? Like, I can't be without my phone because, and then you think to yourself, the rest of human like existence (laughs) up until about 10 years ago existed this way. Like my parents didn't know what I was doing every moment of the day. I didn't know what my friends were doing every, I wasn't accessible at every moment of the day. There were, there was a rhythm and I understand our rhythm is just different now, but I do think that some of us think if I don't, if I'm not always accessible and not always able to check my phone is then I'm mm. going to miss out. And you're like, really those 10 minutes, those 20 right. minutes, that hour, right. that hour, that day, even that day, you really think like that's the exact time that that catastrophic car accident right. is going to happen. Right. That someone has to right. reach you. They'll find you. They'll get you. Right. Um, and so I think that's it. And Aubrey, I just think that, that it's easier to think shallow than deep. It's easier. It's easier yeah. to read Twitter than our Bibles. Yeah. It's easier yeah. to be on Facebook than to read yeah. your Christianity or to right. go right. Uh, spend some time in prayer and journaling. Right. It's just easier. And, and that 
we always take the path of least resistance. We always take the path of least resistance. All right. Very interesting wisdom from Scott McKnight. Put the phone down and read the Bible. Simple enough. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some show at the end of every show we always like to put a smile on your face or do something to encourage you spiritually one of the places we've been going for some positive smiley news is over (laughs) at the week they aggregate good news stories of the week and these are always so fun for us to share with you so brian i'm gonna share the first one okay uh all right this is about a 12 year old boy who is keeping traditions alive at his family farm Farm living is the life for 12-year-old Braden Nadeau, who wakes up every morning before dawn to start working at his grandfather's farm in Maine. Braden feeds the chickens, pigs, turkeys, and cows, cleans their stalls, and picks vegetables, which he sells at a produce stand he opened two years ago. Nice. I taught him the basics, and he took it from there, his grandfather, Dan Herrick, told the Washington Post. I couldn't be more proud that Braden wants to follow the tradition of farming. Herrick's farm is 25 acres, and Braden has taken over much of the duties all hunt his own. Nobody has ever asked Braden to do this. There's just nowhere else he'd rather be, his grandmother, Marie Herrick, said. It's been a joy all these years to watch him learn everything he can from Dan. Braden loves every aspect of working on the farm, from planting seeds to selling eggs to customers at his stand. I really enjoy it. Even getting up at five in the morning, he told the Post. I'm not into video games and goofing around on my phone like some of my friends. I'd rather be busy <laughs> on the farm. Do we think awesome. Braden's going to school? Like, this is outside of school hours, right? I'm a little worried <laughs> was... about that for him. <laughs> Part of the tradition of the family farm was you don't need school. <laughs> you don't need school. You, you got life lessons here on the farm, boy. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. All right, second story. Cafe opened by man with autism offers opportunities for young people with disabilities. Jacob McFarlane loves making his dad the perfect cup of coffee every morning and has a Mm. nickname to prove it, Barista Jake. It makes (laughs) me feel very, very happy, Jacob said. The 21-year-old from Norristown, Pennsylvania, has autism. And in the spring of 2020, his continuing education classes were canceled because of COVID. Jacob needs a routine, as mom said, so the family came up with a way for him to stay busy while doing something he enjoyed. They set up a coffee cart outside of their record store providing curbside service. What that what that turned into was an overwhelming community appreciation of Jacob. The cart grew into the coffee closet located inside the record store, which serves drinks and breakfast items. The coffee closet has raised $27,000 for local charities and employs several other young people with disabilities. Aww. We just want this to be a safe place for these people to come in, feel of service and of value and learn some vocational skills, uh, his mom mm. said. It's been amazing for her to watch Jacob grow in confidence and speak up more. He's found the social side of himself, she said. And if this were to go all the way, uh, were to go all the way tomorrow, the advancement in Jacob in two and a half years has been worth oh, everything. Oh, that is so cool. I love <laughs> that story. Man, these uh, kids are like dominating the world. Seriously. All right, here's the next story. California man is now the principal of his former elementary school. I love full circle stories. This should be a good one. When Mike Huss was a student at Ioni Elementary School in Northern California, he never thought that one day he would be its principal. I am blessed. Huss, 55, told Good Morning America, I truly am, and I don't do anything special. I just show up and work hard. I show up and I try my best. Before becoming principal last month, Huss spent 19 years as a teacher at the school, and prior to that, he was the janitor. He always enjoyed interacting with the students, and several teachers told him he should become an educator. 
Huss wasn't sure he was working so his wife could go to college, but never had this aspiration for himself. That changed when their son was a toddler. I said, you know what? I want to show my son that you can keep growing in life, Huss told Good Morning America. He enrolled in college and earned his teaching credential, all while still working full-time as a janitor. Less than a week after graduating, he was hired at Ioni Elementary School. Teaching was a very rewarding career for him, Huss said, and he wants people to understand there are really good teachers out there doing really amazing jobs. It's just about growing a world, making it a better place. Okay, that is crazy cool. That's cool. From janitor cool. to principal, just like living a living a faithful life. I love it. That is a cool. Of story. the school he went to, that is cool. Yeah, All right, number it's four. Rare fossil is discovered during beach walk on Prince Edward Island. A Canadian teacher came across a fossil so rare that experts believe it could be of a previously unknown species. Last month, Lisa Cormier was walking in Cape Edgemont on Prince Edward Island when she saw something that I thought was a root, she said. And when I looked closer at it, I realized that there were ribs. And then I saw the spine and the skull. Oh, she my. snapped several photos of the partially buried object. Uh, which made their way to a geologist and paleontologist who said it's a fossil that appears to be from the end of the Carboniferous period and in the into the Permian period, making okay. it about 300 million years old. It's Whoa. either a reptile or close relative and could be a one-of-a-kind fossil in the tree of life. Uh, it's extremely rare to find a specimen from this era, he said, and this could even be a previously unknown species. Cormier told CBS News she's stunned by what she found and will keep an eye out for other fossils during her future strolls. Mm. I got to be honest, I would have been freaked out if I found something that had a spine. Uh, and it's oh, like, I just walked upon oh, a dead body. Oh, for sure. Like this would yep. have this would have made me so nervous. I probably would have called the police thinking it was a uh, body, too. Yep. Like, I don't think I would have handled this well. So that's pretty incredible. That's a pretty when you story. hear the word paleontologist quickly are you a child of the of the 90s and 2000s when you hear paleontologist who comes to mind um i i all i can think of is jurassic park what about you no it's ross geller from friends oh he was a paleontologist <laughs> oh yeah how did i miss that of course he was a paleontologist he loved dinosaurs I, uh i love I, well we could talk about ross for a long time but ross perf Ross being a college professor with a British accent is one of that the one is best funny. episodes. Ever. And Rachel and Monica come in the back and they hear him. <laughs> and then they that's do, funny. Like, accents too. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, the paleontologist Ross Geller. All right, number five. This is our last uh, positive story. Very excited to share it with you because it's about wild lorikeets who befriend an Australian couple visiting them daily. This sounds like a Disney movie. Every day, an Australian couple is visited by some unexpected but very welcome guests, a group of wild lorikeets that live in the trees across from their apartment's balcony. It all started in the summer of 2021 when Georgina Brow and Christian Allen left their door open. The lorikeets flew into the apartment as Brow and Allen were having lunch, and they've been letting themselves inside on a daily basis ever since. Brow and Allen said the birds will watch TV with the couple sitting <laughs> on the couch. They are super friendly birds, Brow told Good News Network. We can touch them and hold them, so naturally, we love them. While the lorikeets can be a little demanding, they love to beg for grapes and at times are super loud, Brow said their visit brightens her day and she loves learning about each bird. They all have different personalities and qualities that make them unique, so they are easy to recognize. Hmm. I am not a fan of this story. I don't want birds coming in my house and watching shows <laughs> with me. That feels disgusting. <sighs> and Like, they're pooping everywhere, right? I, 
we do not have we do we can neither uh we don't have confirm that or deny that we? yes, I, yes yeah my cynicism just showed up i don't want birds in my house no, you but don't. good for you them hate birds. I'm, I'm glad for them yeah i do kind of hate birds all right well we will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. for brian from i'm aubrey sampson and you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal flynn told the truth he was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com